Welcome back to the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we seek biblical truth in daily context. I'm Justin Gary. Every now and then, you find an old photo album, if you can remember photo albums, and you start looking through and you realize, man, those were some good times. You're recalled back to a certain event or a certain time or certain place or certain people or certain seasons of life, and you remember the good old days. This week, I was scheduled to teach on the podcast on Acts chapter 9, the story of Ananias, when Saul is finally converted and enters the city of Damascus. And I started to recall something from a couple years ago, a teaching I had done on the same subject. So not quite a photo album, but I found an old MP3 recording of that broadcast and I listened to it and I thought, man, that is exactly what I want to share on the podcast this week. So rather than rebooting it and repolishing it and trying to reenact a scene that I once lived, I decided, why don't I just play it for the audience? So today you're going to hear something a little different. Rather than a podcast that was recorded this last week, I've dusted off the old archives and pulled a teaching from a church that I taught live nine years ago at the time of this recording. A lot has happened, a lot has changed in life since then, but the principles are still exactly the same. So listen in as we pick up on Acts chapter 9 and a live recording from the story of Ananias. So our story today takes place in the town of Damascus. And perhaps you've heard of Damascus, not only historically, but even today if you watch the news. It's about 170 miles north of Jerusalem. So today it would be about a four-hour car ride from Jerusalem to Damascus. And the Christians there in Damascus, they've been hearing stories. They've been hearing stories about what's taking place down in Jerusalem with all those Christians down there. The persecution is getting pretty bad. People are starting to scatter. People, Christians in Jerusalem are starting to leave town because of the persecution. And the guy who's really responsible for a lot of this persecution is this man named Saul. He's actually going into homes of people and taking them bound and throwing them into prison. So that's been happening down in Jerusalem, about a four-hour drive away. Well, now this guy, Saul, who's heading up this operation, is headed to Damascus. And he's got letters of authority, which means he has permission to do it. And he was good at his job of eradicating Christians. By now, many of the Christians had already left Jerusalem. So you imagine you're a man named Ananias and you're a Christian in Damascus. You know that you and your family and your church are next on this guy's list. Any day now you could get a knock at your door and there's a man named Saul standing outside with the authority, with the paperwork to take you and your family away. In fact, in Acts 9 verse 2, it says they had these letters of authority so that if he found any who were of the way, any Christians in Damascus, whether man or woman, no mercy there, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This man had the right and the permission to walk into your home, take you, your wife, and your children, handcuff you, and leave you on a 170-mile journey south to Jerusalem where you would end up in prison. That's the weight of the situation that's going on down here. This is serious. If you are a believer in Damascus, you are a target. Now, three days ago, something strange happened. Saul, with his letters, was stopped in his tracks just outside the city. People say there was this bright light. People were saying there was this this sound, this voice. And something happened to Saul. And he hasn't really been seen for the last three days. Some rumors even now that he's saying that he's a Christian, but... People don't know, is that a trap? Is that just a rumor? Is there some some confusion? 
So that brings us here then to the chapter where we begin today. And we're going to read Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through 19. It starts in verse 10. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in the vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire of the house, at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once. And he rose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. So Ananias hears his name called. There's something about hearing your name. If you're in a group of people or in a situation, when you hear your name, you hear it. Your ear is tuned to hear that. But I was at Walmart a couple weeks ago getting my tires done. So I was getting my tires done. And of course, the great thing about getting your tires done at Walmart is then you can double task and you can go shopping at the same time. So I was taking my time. I was just browsing at things. Those big bins where they have like the $3 and $5 DVDs. I mean, I was going through and looking at every title that they had and just taking my time. And I heard over the, the speaker, Justin Gary, your car is ready. Justin Gary, your car is ready. And when you hear your name in a public place, you think that suddenly everyone's looking at you like they know it's you. And of course, they don't know your name, but you know it and you hear it and you respond. Ananias has heard his name. It says there in the text, Ananias, and it's God who is speaking. The Lord knows his name. How wonderful that is. I am horrible at names. And my wife will testify to that. I embarrass her all the time by saying the wrong names. We were at this conference this one time, and there was this this young woman who kept coming up all week. And she was asking for counsel, and she was just pouring out her life and her story to us. I mean, all week she kept hitting us up. So at the end of the week, I, I said, hey, could we pray for you? And so we closed our eyes, and I'm praying for her and praying for her situation and, and just praying for her and asking the Lord to bless her and work in her life and all this stuff. Amen, amen. She leaves. My, I turn to my wife, and she's looking at me with this pale face. I said, I said, what's wrong? And she said, you were praying for her, and the whole time you were praying the wrong name. <laughs> I do that all the time. My wife can testify. I am horrible with names. I don't know if it's years on the mission field that that part of my brain is just broken or the fact that I'm a yearbook teacher who has to proofread like thousands of names. That, that, but that part of my, my brain is broken when it comes to remembering names. God does not forget names. God knows names. God knows individuals. God knows you. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows you before you're even in the womb. He knows a a word that's going to come on your tongue before you even speak it. He knows us, and he knows us intimately. And he knows our situations. He knows our circumstances. He knows our hardships. He knows our pain. He knows our burdens. God knows. And he wants to speak into our lives. I imagine Ananias at this point, how worried he is, how anxious he is about the impending threat. He knows 
that this man Saul is on his way to arrest them and take them away. And he's wondering, Lord, what are we going to do about this? And God speaks, Ananias. And he has a message, he has a word specifically for Ananias and his family and his people in that place and in that circumstances. It's important for us to seek God in the unknown with our anxieties, with the things that are consuming us, the things that we're going to face. The Bible tells us to be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving to let our requests be made known to God. And the amazing thing about that is when we come to God with those things that concern us in life, God begins to answer. God begins to speak into that area. And how, what a relief it was for Ananias to hear his name. Ananias, I want to talk about that area that you're anxious about right now. And God spoke and God answered. As a missionary on the mission field for so many years, I was just so many times just having to pray and cry out to God for provision for things because being a missionary, you're usually working on a very tight budget. And I remember it was the middle of winter and my car had died. And it was about a month I had been without a car and it was already snowfall and everything. So I was having to walk around this town all the time and no public transportation. So it just was becoming a tiring and, and miserable thing. And it was around um, the New Year. It was between Christmas and New Year's and kind of that dead week of time. And I was sitting in my apartment one morning, and I woke up, and I just prayed. And I said, Lord, I just need a car. I'm, I'm tired of walking, and it's not efficient for me to get to from one place to the next. So I need a car, and I, I know you could do it. So, you know, maybe like six months from now, could you like, you know, get up enough money or a year from now? But just somewhere in the future, Lord, put that on my list. I'd like a car, and I need one. And so I went and I grabbed a devotional book. It was um, my utmost for his highest. And every day you can read a different passage. And the day that I read the passage, it was from the book of Matthew when he says, you know, don't worry about anything. God knows. And, and, you know, he says he knows the birds of the air and he feeds them. He knows what they need and he gives it to them. And so I was reading through that and was encouraging me. I said, see, God, you give food to birds. You can give cars to missionaries. So remember, six months, a year from now, I'll wait for you to answer this request. So I prayed, and I went and started going about my day. And about an hour later, I got a phone call from this couple who was moving down from Germany to minister with us in Slovenia, where I was living for the next year or so. And they had arrived late the night before. So he was calling that morning to tell me that they had arrived, and they had arrived safely with all their stuff. And as I was saying, okay, great, and we'll meet at this time, he said, oh, by the way, as we were leaving our church in Germany, all these people were sending us off. This family came up and said, hey, we feel like we're supposed to give you our car. Um, so here's our car, here's the keys, and go ahead and take it with you and drive to Slovenia. And if you guys don't need it, you can find someone there who needs it. And so he said, so how's your car? Do you need a car? And I said, John, I was just praying this morning for a car, and I, I knew God would answer, but I didn't really expect him to answer now. And just that, that personal touch of, the, of God being a God who knows our needs, who knows our anxiety, and when he begins to speak and say, Ananias, I know what you're anxious for. Turn your face towards me. I have wisdom. I have direction. I have provision for you. So how comforting it was for Ananias to hear his name called by the one who could solve all that he was anxious about. And Ananias' response is right. He says, here I am, Lord. Now, of course, the Lord knows where Ananias is. When the Lord calls his name Ananias, it's not like he's in a waiting room like a receptionist comes out. Ananias, is there an Ananias here? An Ananias? Okay, he says, here I am, but it's not like, and then I say, oh, it's me, Lord. I'm the one. Remember, you created me in the womb. Um, he knows. But Ananias says, here I am. And that is a wise thing for him to do, 
to present himself to the Lord and say, here am, here I am. God knows his creation. He knows us. If we look back in Genesis when God created, when God spoke, his creation responded. When God said, let there be light, there was light. When God spoke and said, create seas, the seas were created. Whatever God said, his creation responded until we get to chapter 3. And then man, the pinnacle of his creation, decides to stop obeying and stop responding to the voice of God. They took of the tree and, and they ate. But after that, we see the scene where God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And he asks the question, where are you? And where were they? They were hiding. They were ashamed. They had covered themselves with fig leaves. And when their creator was calling for them, they were no longer responding. And that's the fallen world that we live in. When God's creation has turned its back upon him, and though God is calling out for his earth, for his people, for his fallen people to return to him, they hide, they turn, they go the other way. When light steps into darkness, they close their eyes. So Ananias does an, a, a wonderful thing this morning. When his creator calls his name, he says, here I am. He presents himself to the Lord. Whatever you want, just call my name and I am here. You know, many people struggle with this. Many Christians struggle with this aspect of being a Christian. Of letting the Lord be Lord. And of presenting themselves to him and saying, here I am, Lord. What do you want? What do you need? Romans chapter 12 tells us as Christians that we are to present ourselves as living sacrifices. And saying, Lord, whatever it is that you want, go ahead and use me. So Ananias says that to the Lord this morning or this day that he has this conversation. Here I am, Lord. And God begins to speak to him and says that Saul is praying right now. Since the light on the road that Saul saw, Saul had discovered something brand new for himself. Saul was a religious man. Religious under the old covenant. And by the time that Saul lived, what God intended under the old covenant had changed very much. The perception of man, even religious man of God, had been skewed a little bit. God was distant. God was to be approached with religious works. God was to be visited just one day a year by one special man to go behind that curtain and we better pay attention in case he is struck down when he goes back there. And the people began to think, if we can just keep God far enough away, but if we can just keep doing the religious rituals, the religious rites, then it'll be okay with God. We'll have favor with him. So everything in their faith and in their practice of worshiping God had become something that it was not intended to be, including prayer. Prayer had become a ritual by this time. Oh, Paul knew how to pray. He was a professional prayer as a Pharisee. He had his prayer shawls that he wore when he prayed. He had his prayer hours that he kept at certain times. He had his prayer traditions that he and his Pharisee brothers would keep. They would stand on corners and they would pray. They would pray to be heard. They would add fasting to prayer so that other people could see how devoted they were to God. And all of this was an attempt to appear outwardly holy and devoted to God. But it was a burden to all who tried to keep it. 
Jesus addressed this in the book of Matthew when he's talking to the people. We have the, ver- the verses and we know it. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and you'll find rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon, upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. We know those verses. We often see them in bookstores, Christian bookstores, as words of encouragement at the end of a long week. Come to me. Take my yoke. I will give you rest for your souls. But when Jesus was speaking to those people, he was talking to a people who are burdened with the things of God. Not because God intended it to be that way, but because man had made it that way. And all they were doing was based upon their own merits and their own efforts and their own strength in order to please a God who they could not please that way. And that's when Jesus said, come to me. My yoke is easy. You cannot carry it. I will do it for you. You cannot please God. I've pleased God. You are not righteous. I am righteous. Put your yoke upon, put my yoke upon you and you will find rest for your souls. Saul had prayed. And that burdensome prayer was the prayers that he knew all too well. But since the light, Saul had been praying for the first time ever, the way it was intended to be. The first time in his life, just the joy that he had, the joy that he knew of, of true prayer. And God says, oh, Ananias, this man is praying. If you could just hear him, it is so good. Saul had learned that prayer was an open door of communication, that the veil had been torn in two, that he could boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence that this God was his father, his friend, his savior. And Saul had never known that one day before. And for now, for three days, he has been praying and he won't stop because he's in love with the one who has saved him. They had so much to discuss, so much to talk about in this prayer that Paul, that Saul could not stop even three days later. It's like when a, a young couple, I don't know, back in the day when two people were interested in each other and started dating and falling in love, they called on the phone all the time. I think people text nowadays. I'll hear my students sometimes. They're talking about an argument they had with their significant other, and they're like, and then I said, and then they said, and then, then I said, and then they said, as I'm hearing this, and, then, and they said, well, what did they say next? And they're like, oh, let me check. And it's, it, all this took place on a text, this argument. My wife always calls them out. She's like, you guys, you guys ask people out. You just text them. In my day, you had to call them, and you had to get through their parents first to get to them. But in those, that season when you're getting to know each other and you're talking on the phone late at night, and you're like, no, you hang up first. No, you hang up first. No, I don't want to hang up first. You hang up. No, you hang up. Why? Because there's so much to talk about. We can just keep talking for hours and days on end. That's what Saul is now experiencing with his God. Oh, it's so good. Three days. Saul is praying. And Ananias, you should hear these prayers that he's pouring out in his heart, this free-flowing love relationship with God. It's not a burden. And I know we all hit that wall sometimes, that the disciplines of being a Christian, whether it be praying or reading the word or, or going to church or serving, we hit a wall and it's a burden. And we need to come to that place where we see the light once again of, Lord, this is so good. I get to experience you in these things. And you are the passion of my life. You are the joy of my life. Ananias, Saul is praying. You should hear him pray. And Ananias, by the way, in verse 12, he is seen in a vision. A man named Ananias coming, putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Ananias, I... Uh, <clears throat> I kind of sort of maybe a little bit already volunteered you to go 
um, he's already seen a vision of you coming. You've all experienced this. You've ever had a spouse, a boss, or someone commit you to do something before asking you to do it? And you're kind of in an awkward position that you can't really get out of it because doing so would kind of ruffle things a little bit. My wife and I, as I mentioned, we do work together at the same high school. And in high schools, um, people are fundraising all the time for everything. And you are their first target as a teacher once they get their fundraising papers and they have to sell something. And back in my day, we sold candy. I mean, that was it. You just sold candy and people bought candy. Well, nowadays with restrictions. So I don't know if you're aware of this, but teachers and club leaders and sponsors have had to get really creative about what we sell. So like the band sells mattresses. They sell mattresses as a fundraiser now at high school. Um, The choir sells pasta. You can get OU Sooner shaped pasta to support the band. I mean, everything. So we kind of do the tag team thing where um, when someone comes to us, we're like, oh, I don't have the checkbook today. You have to go ask Mrs. Gary or show the approach. You have to go ask Mr. Gary and he'll get it from you. And so they walk in. They're like, Mrs. Gary said that you're going to buy this for me. Okay. I can't really talk myself out of it. Have to go ahead and do that. Well, Ananias is kind of in the same situation at this point. Oh, by the way, um, I've already told him to be expecting you. You're going to be the one to lay your hands upon him and pray for him, and he's going to receive his sight. What if Ananias said no at this point? God's already said it. God's already promised it. What if Ananias said no? Well, the first thing is that would be sin. Because when we say Lord, he already said, here I am, Lord. When we say Lord, we're saying, Lord, whatever you want, I will do it. We surrender. We submit. We say, God, you are in charge. And to not do the thing that God calls us to do, no matter how big or small it is, it's sin. We think sin oftentimes is a checklist of do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. Sin is much more simply defined. Sin is doing what I want to do instead of what God tells me is best for me. That's sin. And so for Ananias in this moment, if he says, I'm not going to do it, it is sin. But what if Ananias said no? Would the rest of the book of Acts change? Would the rest of the New Testament not be written? Would your faith today not be present because you wouldn't receive these these words and these scriptures of the New Testament inspired by the Holy Spirit that spoke to you? Well, I'd like to think that God is gracious and God would still accomplish his work, even if this Ananias said no. I'm sure he could call out once again and there'd be another Ananias within a 50-mile radius that could come down to Straight Street and go inside and pray for this man. But this Ananias would have missed out on this opportunity to serve his Lord. God will do his work with or without us. Jesus said that, hey, if they don't cry out to me, even the rocks will cry out. So sometimes we do sit back. We say, God, you can handle this with me, so I'm not going to get involved. Lord, I know there's a need. I know there's an opportunity, but I'm going to step right back right, back right now, and I'm going to let you be God. I'm going to let you figure out how to do that. And God will figure out how to do it. But we miss the opportunity. Famous story in the book of Esther, where the Jewish people are being threatened. And Mordecai says to Esther, hey, you need to speak up and say something. And he says, you know, if you don't, God will be faithful to his people. He will raise up from somewhere, someone to deliver the Jews. But who knows if you came to the kingdom for such a time as this. God does call us and invite us to be a part of it. And God will complete what he wants to do. But how blessed we are when we do enter into the work of God. 
And we have our excuses. We have our justification. Lord, I'm just more of a behind-the-scenes person. I don't want to step out in that way. Lord, that's just not my area of expertise. Someone else is gifted in that way. Oh, Lord, I was just doing something else. It's really not a place in my schedule today. Ananias could have said that. Sorry, Lord, my day planner is already full today. I have no time to go down to Straight Street. I won't be going that direction. We can be the same with God. Don't call on me, Lord. Book of Ezekiel. It says that the Lord sought for one to stand in the gap, and he found no one. Book of Isaiah. Who will go for us? Whom shall I send? Way in the back of the room. Here I am. Send me. The Lord desires to invite us in to be a part of what he calls us to do. And yet if we don't, he will fulfill his purposes. Serving Jesus will cost us. It should cost us. It's not always convenient. And because of that, we can often back out sometimes and say, Lord, find out some other way. I don't want to be a part of this. But do you realize what Ananias is about to do here? He's about to lead Saul, who will become Paul, and share with him and fill him with the Holy Spirit and be part of releasing him to the ministry that God's called him to do. And Ananias would have missed out on that had he said, I'm too busy at this time. But before Ananias can completely commit to this and give his full yes, he has a few follow-up points to discuss with Jesus. We see in verses 13 through 16. It says, then Ananias answered, Lord, um, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias says, Lord, do you really know this guy? I mean, do you know what you're asking me to do? Have you read this guy's background? Have you done a background check on this guy? Because he he has come to bind me. And if I go lay hands upon him, that's basically just say, hey, cuff me. Here I am. Cuff me right now. Are you really sure that you want to do this? Well, the Lord comforts him. And he also says to him, Ananias, go. And I will show him all the things that he must suffer. God comforted Ananias. Ananias, you just take care of what I've entrusted you with, and I will do the rest. So much of what God asks us to do, we can't do. He has to do it. The plan that God had for Saul was huge. It was a transformation. It was a new call. There would be a new name attached to this. And Ananias, I'm not asking you to make all that happen. I will show him. I will discipline him. The calling that I have for Saul, it's long and it's hard. And Ananias, you cannot do it. You are rightful to be fearful and intimidated. Ananias, you just go and you do the one thing that I've asked you to do. And I will do the rest. Much of what we attempt to do as believers and even as the church today is limited to what we know we can do successfully. We'll only attempt to do what we can know and guarantee the outcome will be. And do you know what that does? It lacks faith because it doesn't require God to show up at all. It's the best of man. It's the best of our talents. It's the best of our resources. It's the best of our abilities. And you know what? The kingdom of God will never grow that way. 
And also, it tells us in the book of Hebrews, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Ananias has to go right now, and he can only do part of it. God will do the rest. And God promises at the beginning, I'm just asking you to go in faith, knowing that if you can go and do this, I will do the rest. I will show him. I will discipline him. God often will call us to trust in things that only he can finish. That if he does not come through, we will utterly fail unless he steps in. And that is the faith that pleases God. I went through 10 years on the mission field as a single pastor. And that was very difficult, very challenging. And I would often try and make something happen. There'd be someone that I'd, I'd meet maybe at a conference or something that would be interesting and she was kind of cute. And I'd try and make something happen and the, the Lord would just shut it down. Usually often, often very quickly and, and very painfully. And God would often say the same thing to me as I'd pray. He said, Justin, you take care of my bride, the church. And I'll take care of your bride. And so I was going through this one situation where I was trying to make something happen. And God shut it down. And it hurt a lot. And he was healing my heart through the scriptures one day. And showed me through the scriptures just this, this study, this teaching basically. And trusting him in that season of being single. And that God would fulfill that in his way and his time as long as I sought first the kingdom of God. And as I did that, I mean, the, my journal was just flowing in these pages, this message. And, and as I prayed through, the Lord began to speak to me that I would, sh- I would share this message many times with a group of singles or with groups of singles until he, before he brought someone into my, into my life. And as I prayed through that, he also gave me a picture, a vision. And it was of the Bible college in Hungary, in Vita, from the preacher's pulpit looking out on the congregation. And I took that to note and said, okay, I'm supposed to teach this one day in that auditorium. And I don't know when and I don't know how, but I'm supposed to do that one day. And so sure enough, many times I teach at groups of singles or young adult groups and stuff. And that's the message God will always say to go ahead and, and preach, to encourage them to seek first the kingdom of God. And God will bring that aspect into their life when it's time. And for years I had gone to the Bible college. And every time I came, they never asked me to teach. They'd asked me to come up with a five-minute devotion and come up and share, but they never gave me a session to teach at. Which is kind of weird because usually anyone who shows up, they're like, all right, you're teaching. And so Jeremy calls me a couple years ago and he says, hey, um, could you come up and teach on this certain Sunday night? When he said the word teach, I was like, I know what message I'm supposed to teach. And I said, sure, I can come up. Anything specific you want me to teach on? He said, no, it's open. Whatever you feel led by the Lord to teach on. I said, okay, I know what I'm supposed to teach on. So I had just been through another one of those situations where I kind of had my heart broken. And so I took the notes for that teaching, but I took another set of notes in the back of my Bible because I was like, Lord, really, I don't really want to share on that one right now. It's a little too personal and raw at this point. So I've got this other great teaching, Lord. So in during worship, if you want to change your mind, there's some notes back there. <laughs> and the Lord did not change his mind. And so I got up, and I think five years after, five or six years after receiving that teaching, the vision was finally being fulfilled of me teaching that auditorium. This is a very message that God had preached. Well, it happened that my wife was there in the audience that night. And the, men, the message spoke to her as it spoke to many other people that were there. And nothing really special. And a couple nights later, she couldn't sleep. And she was tossing and turning all night. And she felt like the Lord spoke to her. Just this impression, this thought came to her head and said, you are going to marry Justin Geary. And my wife is not that kind of a person who's like looking for signs and voices and everything. I mean, she's always one of those skeptics. Like, did God really say, you know, she's one of those like, let's test this. Tells us to test the prophecies. Let's test that prophecy. So for her, it was this, whoa, okay. And, and, and she turned it back to the Lord and said, Lord, I'm not going to make this happen. 
if you are going to do this, you are going to do this. And sure enough, God did it, and fast forward a year later, we ended up getting married and, and everything like that. But to me, it was such a testimony of story of God doesn't call us to do everything. And oftentimes we think, okay, God wants us to get from point A to point B. Well, I got to do every step in between. He said, no, you just take the first step and I will fill the rest. Because there's so much what God calls us to that we as his people and we as his church, we cannot fulfill. And he doesn't expect us to fulfill. And Ananias was not being expected to turn Saul into Paul. He was simply called to go and take that one step of obedience. So Ananias goes and he walks in the door. And this is what we see in 1718. Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him. He said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he received his sight at once and he arose and he was baptized. This is the moment of truth. Ananias walks in that house and there's that monster, Saul, who's been taking people and throwing them into prison. He's come for him. And he prays for him and his eyes are open. And immediately at once he sees. Three days he's been blind. We know the story. We know Saul's going to get his sight back. Saul didn't know. Would he be blind for the rest of his life? He didn't know. And here's this man who comes in, this gentle man, one of those Christians And he prays for him and his eyes are open. And what's the first thing he sees now as a believer? He sees Ananias. Ananias' name means God is gracious. The first thing Saul saw as a Christian was that God was gracious. And that would be the foundation for the rest of Saul's ministry, for the rest of Saul's writings, because Saul could declare, I received the grace of God. I was the worst of sinners, and yet it was the grace of God, not my works. It was the grace of God, not by my might, but it was by the grace of God. Paul knew as a foundation, it was the grace of God that was the beginning of everything that he did and everything he experienced in his relationship with God. And that's why it was important for Ananias to respond that day, because through him being there, he wanted Saul to see that God is gracious. Look at all the grace in here. He lays his hands upon him. That's a sign of blessing, the grace of God. He hears this this voice, Brother Saul. He's been accepted in the family of God by the grace of God. There's no waiting period for him to clear. He's in the family of God. He receives his sight, this miracle, this blessing, this work of the Holy Spirit. That's by the grace of God. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit are throughout this chapter. God speaking. There's visions. There's healings. There's amazing things happening. The gifts of the Holy Spirit, the moving of the Holy Spirit in his church, it's by the grace of God. And here Saul's eyes are open to see that God is gracious. Saul did not deserve this. No second chance. The honor, the calling. And for years, Paul would write about that. I did not deserve this, but it was by the grace of God that I am what I am. And God used Ananias, this man, to be the vessel of his grace. In our world today, we live amongst haters of the church, mockers of Christianity, lifestyles and choices that are out to destroy God, his people, and what we believe and teach. And how are we going to respond When we encounter them, may I suggest that God wants to reveal his grace to them through us, that the church is a place 
for people to receive the grace that they've never experienced. That the church is the place to extend grace. I don't know if you've noticed yet, but grace is not something that just happens the day that we get saved and we need that from God for that day. And then, okay, God, I've got it from here. Grace is not something that I need in my relationship with God just for that initial meeting with him. Grace is not something I need to experience in the church when I walk in the first time and I'm a sinner and I need to repent and get saved. I don't know if you've noticed, but people will need grace. Your leaders will need grace. You will need grace. How much grace is here? The Bible says in Romans, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Much more. Extending grace to people is the foundation of the gospel. And extending grace to people, it does work. It's God's most effective and perfect way of transforming the world around us is by being gracious. And God opened Saul's eyes to that, that, that day as he opened his eyes and he saw Ananias, that the Lord was gracious. The chapter finishes, or this section of the chapter finishes in verse 19. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Notice, Ananias is gone. He's out of the picture. We don't read about him again. Those nine, ten verses. His claim to fame was Saul. We don't read anything else. We don't hear about his life, these great works, other people he filled, he prayed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Just some guy named Saul. That's all he's really credited with as far as we see in the Bible. Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah, God used me to pray for Saul to receive the Holy Spirit. And yet Ananias doesn't use that for his glory. We don't hear of him again. Jesus was doing something in, in Paul's life before Ananias showed up. And he would continue doing it after. And all Ananias was called to do was be faithful in that thing that God called him to do. I've been learning a lot about faithfulness in this last season. And about God's grace to be faithful. Because sometimes it's hard to be faithful and you need God's grace to continue doing those things well. I loved pastoring. I loved being on the mission field. I was struggling when God called us to leave the mission field and hand over the church. And, and there was a reason for that because God needed to raise up those nationals who are now pastoring and leading that church on their own. So he needed me out of the way to do that. But he called us to the glorious high calling of teaching public high school. And I struggle with that a lot. Because, you know, every day I come and it's, it's great just showing up and, you know, the kids are there early and on time. And like, they're like, give me more work. And they're like, I love what you're teaching me. They're like, hey, can we just hang out sometime? And, you know, just, they're like, it's just, it just exudes this, this goodness, you know, being in public high school. And um, this year, at the beginning of the year, I was like, okay, here we go, another year. And we was really saying, Lord, like, come on, like, there's got to be like a need for missionaries somewhere. I mean, I can turn my resume somewhere. There's got to be someplace to go. Like, I love teaching. I love pastoring God's people. I love seeing the work of God. And then there's public school teaching. So, Lord, come on. And the Lord kind of convicted me and, and spoke to my heart. He said, Justin, you, you, you think being on the mission field and pastoring and teaching people, like that is such a high and great calling because of the results you get to see and the work you get to be involved with? 
He says, and then you've kind of got this attitude about this thing I'm calling you to do right now, which I led you to do, which I clearly led you to do, and open every door for you to be there. Why is it that you think that this is a higher calling than this? It's not about what I've called you to do. It's about the voice of the one who called you to do it. This is just as holy as this because I called you to do it. It doesn't matter what I called you to do. It's because I called you to do it that makes it a high and holy calling. And the way I give you the grace to endure 14 years of the front lines of the mission field, I can give you the grace to do what I'm calling you today, to be faithful in those things. Ananias learned that. It was simply by saying, okay, here I am, Lord. I am yours. And Lord, I'm afraid right now to do what I'm going to do. I don't want to do what I'm gonna, what you're asking me to do right now. But I'll do it by obedience. And you will give me your grace to be able to do it. And God did it. Saul's eyes were open. And Saul was able to testify, God is gracious. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the graciousness that you've extended to us. That while we were yet sinners, you died for us. Lord, we thank you for the grace that we have each and every day to get up, to face this world, and to fulfill the callings that you've given us. Lord, in this room of this size with this many people, I don't know anything or a portion of what you're doing, but you do. And God, I thank you that you know us by name. I thank you that you know our anxieties. And I thank you that you know how you plan to fulfill the things that we can't figure out right now. Father, forgive us for our disobedience. Forgive us for our excuses. And forgive us for not being gracious. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Fill us with your love. That we might experience you and be an extension of your heart to this world in which we live. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Thank you.